You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. We've talked about this in the past, but I, did I ever tell you I was almost part of a class action suit? What? No. <laughs> so I bought... I bought a, uh, I bought a Nissan. Do you have asbestos? Mesothelioma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I was at Camp Lejeune. And uh, <laughs> geez, do you get something like almost every other week on this, you know, trying to get you to join this lawsuit on Camp Lejeune? Uh, I have no idea what you just said, actually. Oh, it's some big is, class action suit. Apparently, the, the horrible things went on in the drinking water at this place. And oh, they're trying no. to, they're trying to round up participants anyway my, my point is I, I bought this truck and i'm about literally a mile from the place i bought it it's brand new by the way and i turn the corner and the tire comes off just come the, the tire, tire or the wheel the tire comes off the wheel okay okay so for you know i'm there uh they come they tow it they fix it all everything's good well how you were driving I, I was going through a, a stop or wow. going through a, a red light or green light. It's yeah. dangerous. That's what I thought. And so I'm going to shorten this story, but I'm going down fast forward, you know, a year or so I'm going down the freeway and it starts to wobble. Like, you know, like I've got a flat tire and I pull over on the, on the freeway and I go around to look at my flat tire and it's not a flat tire. The wheel now has come off and is up in the oh, wheel. Oh, wow. Yes. So it could have been super dangerous. So I get it uh, towed, obviously. I can't drive it back to the place. They fix it and off I go. I'm like, oh, okay. And so now fast forward a year, all right, or six months, and I'm getting new tires. I take it into you know my local tire place. And I'm sitting there reading road and track in the stupid waiting room or you know, whatever. And the manager comes out. He goes, oh, you know, Mr. Smith. I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I need to show you something. And so he takes me into the shop and, you know, the truck's up on the lift. And he points to the inside of this wheel, which is just mm-hmm. mangled because it came off. And he goes, look at all this. And I said, yeah, it, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, man, that's yeah, why I'm here. That's, uh, that happened, you know, but, you know, it's good. You know, they, they fix it. And he goes, no, no, no. Um, we need you to sign a release because we're going to put this back on we're not doing anything more to this truck and you're going to go away and you're going to sign a release that we didn't do anything to your truck. And we're not, we're not replacing your tires. We're not doing anything. I said, why? He goes, well, you have spacers on this, on these wheels. And I said, what, what's a spacer? And he goes, well, you put spacers on this, on this truck that basically is like a donut with holes in it where the lug nuts fit through and it scoots the wheel out a little bit. Okay. And I guess they do that so that the brakes will fit or something like that. And I go, I didn't, I didn't do that. He goes, well, no reputable place would put these on, uh, on a truck. I said, why? He goes, well, cause when they shift on four wheel drive, it will shear the lug nuts off and your wheel will come off. And I said, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. He goes, so who put these on? I said, the dealership. He goes, no, I go, yeah, they did. So he calls the dealership. They come get the truck. And they're, they're wanting to like charge me to fix it again. And I tell my buddy who happens to be, you know, Gene yeah. over in Dallas, who happens to be a, 
personal injury attorney, I tell him this story. He goes, holy shit. He goes, you could have been really hurt. He goes, your client won in my, <laughs> my class action suit. So to his credit, so, so Gene calls as my attorney and uh, gets me a new truck. You got a new truck oh, for they free? Just, oh, oh, yeah. When he was done with them, they're just like, how about if we give you a brand new truck, Mr. Smith, you know, with uh, standard wheels on it? I'm like, that sounds fair. What a deal. He yeah. had seats, too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's as close as I got to ever being in a class action suit. Well, imagine if you had Instagram and smartphones back then. Nissan, they might have had a crisis on their hands. They might have had. Today's guest is an expert in crisis management, Evan Neerman, crisis PR expert, the founder and CEO of Red Banyan, a global relations agency known for its ability to deliver the right messages at the right time to those who matter most. With more than 20 years experience, Evan specializes in crisis communications, cancel culture, celebrity PR, and other high stakes situations. He's a recognized voice in the PR industry and go-to source for the media. Before Red Banyan, Evan developed public relations strategies for the government of Ethiopia, operated his own Washington-based boutique PR agency, and worked for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, one of the country's leading advocacy groups. His newest book, The Cancel Culture Curse, offers a relatable explanation of cancel culture and its core elements, makes a convincing case against the fundamentally un-American practice through case studies and real-life examples. We talked about a lot with Evan. Uh, we covered considering PR crisis management plans for your business before a crisis starts, reacting too quickly and too slowly to crises, getting advice from outside unemotional perspectives, how critical thinking skills are being trained out of us, and how to exist um, online in a quick-to-react world. Evan's a really smart guy. Uh, he is very unique in... Um, the fight that he's waging against cancel culture. You know, a lot of people talk the talk, but Evan's out there walking the walk. If you stick around, you'll learn something about how to protect your business from crisis, no matter how big or small your presence in the public is today. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Evan. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. I have a question for you, though. How yes. do I scrub all of my high school pictures off my mom's Facebook? <laughs> well, the first thing you need to do is go straight to your mom and you need to find dirt on her and threaten to release it unless she does exactly as you say. Well, that's a this, the problem with that strategy, Evan, is she's never done anything wrong. Yeah. That's probably right. <laughs> so, well, the thing about a lot. you're going to tell the world she did something wrong, which you know is not true, and yeah. she may know is true. No, nobody but, would believe that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would. I would say I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your father, but I would talk to your dad and see if maybe he could have a word with her. That <laughs> That's might right. be the, the maybe I'll do that. Strategy. Maybe I'll do that. There you go. I might uh, intervene on your behalf. Thank you. You've got a book coming out. I do indeed. Yeah, I have my book. second book coming out. Yeah, nice. Nice. Tell me about that. How was that process putting that together? Uh, it was good. You know, it was a little different this time. I'm working with Skyhorse Publishing, which is a pretty well-known mm -hmm. publishing house out of New York City, and they're known for having the courage to take on controversial topics and to 
really believe in a free marketplace of ideas. And so when I went to them with the idea of this book on cancel culture, they went for it pretty immediately and they've been great to work with. So uh, I have a co-author in the book on the book, um, my colleague, Mark Sachs, who really did a great job of researching a lot of the content that's there, interviewing some pretty high profile people who have actually been canceled because that's a big part of of what we talk about in the book. The book is called The Cancel Culture Curse, From Rage to Redemption in a World Gone Mad. And Mark played a, a really integral role in gathering the information and doing tons of research and reading. And then uh, it was my job then at the end to come in and take his chapters and my chapters and weave it all together. So, so I, I want to hear I want to hear some of the great stories from that. But but back up a little bit and tell me how you got yeah. into the business you're in, because it's pretty specific when you look at crisis management and dealing with those types of things. How did you how did you move into that field in the first place? That's pretty easy. I spent the first 15 years of my career in Washington, D.C., so mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's a town that knows a thing or two about people stepping in it and getting in trouble. So that was where I learned uh, that this field even existed. And actually how I, how I discovered crisis PR specifically is I was about seven years in at my first job working for a great organization and they got embroiled in a crisis through no fault of their own. And since I was the internal in-house communications person who really worked on the messaging internally and externally for the organization, when these outside crisis consultants came in, I was the one who was interfacing with them and working with them. And so I got to get hands-on experience and I was like, this is what I want to do. The next step in my career is to do this. And so when I left that organization, I went to work for a firm that just specifically did high stakes and crisis PR for foreign governments, celebrity clients, high profile CEOs that got into trouble. Ended up having uh, one more stop at a working in-house at a startup, did that for two years and then was like, you know what, the time is, it's now or never, now or never. I got to make the jump. I know that there's something here. I think that crisis communications is my passion. I got to start my own firm. And so that was what I did about 12 years ago. And that's how Red, Bo- Red Banyan was born. How long is the engagement with somebody, you know, by the time sort of it, it, it hits the fan and somebody, <laughs> somebody calls you or, you know, you're connected with them, it's hit the fan. Is that something that that crisis management time period, is that, is that days, weeks, you know, can't, can't go very long, I wouldn't think. You know, it, it depends on the circumstance and the situation. So it's not uncommon for us to get a call at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by 1030, we're already working for that client. We're doing a kickoff call. So it, it happens very, very quickly. Now, what people think about from crisis management is that they call us when they're already in the thick of it. But that's not actually the case. Sometimes they call us after the fact they've had a crisis and they're well into it and they should have called us a week earlier and it's it's not too late but they would have done well to call us earlier and we're really doing a lot of cleanup in other cases they're coming to us because they have a vulnerability and they're worried that they might end up in a crisis and they want to know what we can do to help them prevent it in the first place and then there are other instances where we're working with people or organizations 
that don't have a crisis, but they want to make sure that they never end up in one. And so we actually come in before and we put together a plan for them, which we call CPR, a crisis preparedness roadmap, in order to game out for them where they're most likely to have problems and to get ahead of them before that crisis rears its ugly head. I imagine that most people, I mean, I, I'm not a high profile individual by any means. It wouldn't occur to me to have a crisis management team in my back pocket. But for an A-list celebrity, I would imagine that that's something that they would have always, right? Leonardo DiCaprio has like always had a crisis management firm. So there's somewhere between me and Leonardo DiCaprio where- it's a, That's a big gap. Don't being, even put that in the- You're being irresponsible <laughs> by not- I see the not, resemblance. I, and by the way, I think you. you're just, just as handsome as Leo. I'm <laughs> not sure you. if you're as talented as him in terms I, of I, acting, but you're definitely as good looking. Let me just put I that I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> My point is there's somewhere where you're being irresponsible by not having a crisis management firm. Where's that at? So I think what COVID-19 showed everybody is that it's not a matter of if, but it's when. And that crises do happen and they have the potential to impact everybody. From a solopreneur to a person at a large company, publicly traded to a privately held, high profile, low profile, no profile. And I think that the same is true for cancel culture. And that's part of why I wrote the book about cancel culture is people have this misperception that crises or that a cancel culture attack is only focused on the Leo DiCaprio's of the world or uh, high profile businesses that everyone's talk here's talking about on the network news or whatnot. But actually it's average citizens, it's day-to-day people and businesses, small, medium, and large that are actually really at risk. And so hopefully if, if you come away from nothing else of, of our discussion today, I hope it is that you actually do need to be prepared because the good news for Leo DiCaprio is he's got, as you pointed out, a whole team. He's got his agent. He's got his lawyers. Yeah. He's got his publicists. Who have you got? Who do most people have? And the answer is not no, a lot no. of people on speed yeah. dial. And that's why the time to start thinking about a crisis is well, well can, before you, you need I, one. I can see why people would wait a week, right? Because if if that if something like that happened to me, right? If I got on the wrong side of some, you know, Twitter spat or whatever, it, I don't know how long it would take for me to run into someone if I didn't know you. How long would it take me to run into someone that goes, "Oh, you should have talked to Evan. You should have called Evan a week ago." Right? It's, I don't I don't know anyone who knows anyone that's been in that position to get quote unquote canceled, but it'll happen so quickly, like. The story with Michael Irvin, you know what's going on with him? I was trying to figure out what was going so on with him. He, We're all he, trying to figure yeah, out. Yeah, exactly I, I think he's trying to figure out what's going on with him. He, it was Super Bowl weekend and he was supposed to be, you know, one of the, I don't know, he had some role in, right. on ESPN or NFL Network. And um, they were all staying at the Marriott um, in the city, wherever the Super Bowl was. And uh, one of the hotel employees accused him of, misconduct and it was an it was an interaction that occurred in the lobby of the hotel okay Mm -hmm. in public with other people and she said it was kind of unclear she didn't say he came out and did this and this and this she just said he was you know untoward and the nfl network said okay see ya the marriott said we're booting you from your room You, you can go to the hotel down the street the nfl network said you're not on tv anymore and and so then the story 
was, you know, the, like everyone's kind of speculating, well, he must have done something really, really bad. And just in, you know, it took a month later, like March 9th for him to even have a press conference about it. Well, he, I saw that, you know, dig too deep on Michael Irvin's story, but the, the, uh, the attorney for him actually said that Marriott wouldn't even give them the tapes of the video in the lobby and allow them to defend themselves. So that story festered for a, for a while while they couldn't even defend themselves because they didn't have copies of the tape. And Michael Irvin said, I didn't, I didn't do anything, but they don't, you know, they're, they're having to deal with all the blowback. What do you do in a situation like that where they're just stuck? I mean, he's sitting there twisting in the wind. I mean, he's pretty pissed at Marriott. Well, look, the, you raise a good point that the tapes may show something or they may show nothing, which is kind of the point. But I would argue that you don't need the tapes in order to drive your narrative. And what Michael Irvin has going for him is he's a big enough name to where if he would have called a press conference within a couple of days, he could have gotten his side of the story out there. And I think the fact that we don't even really know the details is because I don't think either side has done an effective job at explaining and driving the narrative. And as a consequence, what happens in situations like this is you're left and, and the media needs to write stories. People, it leads it to a lot of speculation and a, a vacuum. And instead, I think either, you know, if I were advising Michael Irvin, it would have been to be much more assertive from day one and really be specific about what did or with what didn't occur. And on the flip side, if I were advising Marriott, it would be putting together a strategy to be very forthcoming about what took place so that people would be won over to their perspective. And I really don't think in this case, either side did a great job of driving the narrative. There was just too much that we, a month later, still are kind of left scratching our heads, wondering what happened. It seems like in in most of the cases around crisis management, the the key decision is is speed of reaction. And it seems like where most people get into trouble, most companies get into trouble, is that they're just simply slow to react. You know, we didn't hear from them. They didn't come out. They didn't do this uh, and allow that negative narrative to, to take hold. It can be that they're too slow, but the opposite is also the other extreme, which is they react too quickly and they kowtow to the pressure and they fold when the Twitter mob comes for them and they make a a rash decision. Is that reacting too quickly or is that just being weak and not having any principles? I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. Well, it could be both. if If they reacted, so flip side of that is they react immediately and go, that didn't happen. We're not backing down, blah, 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 whatever. They just, they take a stand, but they react quickly. You know, did they, would you say they reacted too quickly? Who Marriott in this case? Well, okay. So like, sure. Yeah. Let's say Marriott reacted, you know, the very next day and go, no, we stick by our employee. We have video that says this, whatever. They came out with their story the next day and go, boom, here's how we. Okay. So I, Let's I guess I'm confused. Wait. How could it, we don't have to talk about that issue, but how can someone react? How can either party in a crisis react too quickly? All right. Great question. And I'm glad I'm going to be able to give you a real life example from just this past week. So, so here's an example. Uh, and I'm going to 
this is a client who I worked with personally several years ago, and it's just back in the news within the last week. So this is an individual who was in charge of the soccer program for all of Haiti. And allegations came out that he abused his position in order to commit sexual assault against girls who were training at the National Football Academy within Haiti. And what happened was it created a huge firestorm in the press because these are some of the most horrific allegations that you can have. Abusing of children, of course, is, is it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find something more awful than that. So what happened was the story blows up in the press. He's immediately suspended. And then the governing body of soccer, FIFA, issues him a lifetime ban without the full due process to investigate all the allegations. He was saying from day one, this is not true, didn't happen. My political enemies are sowing this against me in order to dethrone me, to take me out. The media is responsible because they're taking their narrative hook, line, and sinker, and it's not true. FIFA, afraid that they're going to get bad press because, hey, the media is saying there's this guy and he's, he's alleged to have done these terrible things. They slap him with a lifetime ban. Here we are three years later, and the court, the national, the international court that oversees all sport, the Court of Arbitration for Sports, does a full investigation, and they conclude there was a rush to judgment here. There is not evidence to conclude that he actually did these things, and therefore he should not have been banned for life. So I think that that, Singer, is, is a great example where they moved very quickly to try to distance themselves. And you see okay. this with companies all the time. An employee is accused, yeah. not, not proven that they've done something, accused. And the company will move so aggressively to get them out of here so that the mob doesn't come for us. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I guess that in in a way, like an, a quick overreaction is kind of how, how most of these people end up getting their jobs taken from them or et cetera, is the company says, oh, geez, get get away, get away, get away, get away. The last thing they want to be accused of is defending somebody who, of course, is doing the worst thing you could be accused of, right? But that's in some way what NFL Network did to, to Michael Irvin. And, and I don't know, we might learn more about Michael Irvin. You know, who knows? We might not. We might be completely on their side soon, but who knows? <laughs> they, they, but they, the next day, you know, or that night, we're like, you're out. Um, and that, that seems, that seems challenging. So reacting too slowly is bad. Reacting too quickly is bad. How do you distill that into a decision, like a, a framework to say, when you're reacting appropriately. Well, part that's part of the value of bringing in an outside perspective and a firm or an individual who deals with these types of situations because then you have the experience, you've got the judgment based on past circumstances that may have been similar. The details are always different in every circumstance. Yeah. But after you've been in the crisis management game long enough, you start to see patterns and you start to see. So a company contacts you, chances are, are after a decade or more in this business, we've worked with someone else in their industry or we've seen a similar circumstance and we know what worked or what could have worked better from past experience. And so that's that's why sometimes when you're at a decision point within a company, especially when the stakes are really high and the margin for 
error is very slim, it is of tremendous benefit to rely on that outside perspective. And it doesn't just have to be a crisis PR, crisis management firm like mine. It could be a really smart attorney who has your best interests at heart, et cetera. My point is when you're under enormous pressure, especially in this day and age, there's never been a more dangerous time to be in business, period. And when you're in the thick of it, you are not in a position emotionally and mentally to make necessarily the best decisions. Yeah. And so it's at that point where you really need to, to rely on someone else, perhaps who's not as emotionally involved, et cetera, to give you their take. And that can be really invaluable. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, like with money, for example, part of the value that we're providing to our clients is we're not we're not as emotionally invested as they are. And that allows us to have more measured judgment. Doesn't make us smarter, doesn't make us wiser, but we're less we're less likely to have emotionally charged decisions. That's why we rely on CPAs for good tax advice, rely on attorneys for good legal advice. It's not only because they know more about tax and more about the law, it's that they can look at it from an outside perspective and go, okay, man, here's here's what I think you should do. Take a deep breath. And and that's so important for business owners to have advisors that they can count on in these, you know, specific areas. Um, because it it gets it gets so difficult. You know, it's not just the technical knowledge which AI can generate for us. You know, I can find out pretty much anything I need to know online, but I can't collect the wisdom that comes from experience through chat GPT. Right. You know, I cannot do knowledge that. is one thing and wisdom is something very, very different. One of the things I talk about in the book is that kids today and uh, they have more knowledge than we had when we were kids or certainly the generation that came, you know, I'm Gen X, the baby boomers before us, they, everyone would tell you that kids have more access to information. They have more knowledge today than at any time before, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have more wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Wisdom comes from experience and part of the value that you're able to provide to your clients is saying, Hey man, I've worked with plenty of people that are in this spot. You've never been here before. <laughs> You've never been getting canceled. Uh, I, I've seen how other people react. And, and I would imagine that a lot of the value that you're providing is how they're dealing with it internally. It's not exactly about okay, this is what I think you should post on Twitter right now. It's about, hey, this is how you should start to treat yourself in this moment. It's a really smart point. A lot of times when people think crisis management or they think about crisis PR, they focus almost exclusively on media relations. What are you going to say to a reporter if and when they call? What are you issuing in terms of a press statement? But there's actually a ton of other audiences that you need to be concerned about. And many times business owners, entrepreneurs aren't thinking about the people who actually matter most in a crisis, which is their third-party validators, their business partners, their suppliers, their partners, their employees. If you've got great messaging to your team in a high stakes or a crisis situation, You've now got a whole army of troops who can go out there and can help disseminate the message of what really happened to correct misinformation or disinformation. And I think people, when they in, inaccurately believe that the role of a crisis manager is simply to put something out to the press, whereas that's not really the case. The job is really to 
look ahead as to what the objective is. What does success look like for the organization or the individual who's under pressure? And then what are the tools you can use to chart a course to get there? And that may mean there's a press conference. It may mean there's a press release. It may mean there is no statement. It may mean that you've got an internal person serving as a spokesperson. It may mean that you're using an outsider as your spokesperson, or it may mean that you're working internally. But what are you saying on your website? What are you saying on social media? There are all these other avenues and places to push out your message and tell your story besides simply relying on the press to tell it for you. So, so when do you decide where you're not making a statement versus making a statement? Because it, it seems sometimes if you make a statement, uh, you can introduce concern that wasn't there. In other words, you know, if I go into a restaurant and the wait waitress comes over and says, Oh, by the way, we didn't spit in the food. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I didn't think you did. So now, <laughs> now, you now bring you're that not up. so sure now you bring that up and now I'm concerned, like what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good example. Uh, a terrible one. Uh, just about to dinner tonight. Um, I'm already thinking about my waiter spitting in my food. So thanks, Sean. I appreciate Sorry about that. that Evan. <laughs> All right. Deep breath. Um, Look, that's part of the risk, especially when you're talking about a situation where litigation lawsuits can be involved. You have to really err on the side of caution because there could be liability issues with going too far in the statement. And that's why you have to measure it very carefully. I would say to you, nine times out of 10, you should say something. Maybe it's even more than that. Maybe 95 out of 100 times, you should actually say something and say something publicly. But it is very easy to put something out that assuages concerns, but doesn't actually create any liability for you. And for that, that's why you engage a crisis manager, a crisis PR firm, et cetera, who's used to working with attorneys directly, because you can almost always say something. Now, the problem is the lawyers. How many times have you heard that? The lawyers <laughs> are the problem. And I say that with nothing but love in my heart for lawyers because I work with them day in, day out. But think about this. A lawyer sees things through the lens of mitigating risk most of the time. Yeah. Their yeah. job is to counsel clients. I don't know that this is going to happen, but it could happen. They are the ultimate example of a glass half empty perspective. And in terms of protecting your business and your viability, et cetera, it's invaluable. It's important. You got to get good legal advice. But a lot of lawyers are not, they're trained in the law. They're not trained communicators or public relations practitioners. And what a lot of lawyers don't understand, they reflexively in a situation where something's happened and a company is under fire, they want you to clam up. They want you to say nothing. And their advice most of the time is we, we should not say anything or we should say no comment if they call us. And they are flat wrong most of the time. There is almost always, in every scenario, an opportunity to say something. Now, that something that you say, that story that you convey, that statement that you put out, doesn't have to create exposure. It could just reiterate positive aspects of who you are. It could be what we refer to as a holding statement. So, for instance, let's go back to poor Michael Irvin and Marriott. 
or poor Marriott. We don't know who who's the poor person who who deserves our sympathy in that one. So imagine if it Marriott, won't be Michael Irvin if he wins this yeah. case. It's a hundred million. Dollars. No, he won't be. Uh, quite, quite some numbers that he's right. looking for. Um, Marriott. So let's just assume Marriott's lawyers are saying, "Well, let's not say anything because we don't know how this is going to happen." And Michael Michael Irvin may sue us for a lot of money. Well, Marriott still could put out something that says. We're aware of the situation. We are conducting a thorough investigation to get to the bottom. For us, it's important that every one of our guests gets treated respectfully, and we want to create an environment where all of our, uh, you know, everyone who stays at a Marriott has the best possible experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, they could put that statement out. Now, is there li- Did they open themselves up to liability? I would be hard pressed to have someone tell you where the liability lies or where the exposure lies in a statement like that. But on the flip side, what, what did that statement, and I'm just making it up as we go, so right, obviously sure. we want to make it a little better before we put it out, but, <laughs> but there's, what are they conveying? They're conveying, yes, we're acknowledging that something happened. They're taking it seriously. They're expressing that they intend to do a full investigation and get to the bottom. So they're willing to extend a degree of due process, not leap to judgment. And then perhaps most importantly, they're reiterating something positive about them, about their commitment to their customers, to their guests, about how they want people to feel when they stay at a Marriott. So I think that that's a true life example of how you can say, put something out that really doesn't say a lot, but it says something. Yeah. That's a great point. I like that we're ragging on lawyers now because my sister's an attorney. And uh, so anytime I get to poke fun at her. Uh, and oh, good. Good you should bring her on right now so we can really, you know, put her <laughs> on the spot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a problem with a lot of uh, professionals that receive formal education because it's so, it, it's a years of training in concrete thinking, right? Doctors are very valuable in society. We want people who understand medicine. At the same time, they they present with this risk-free approach to every solution, right? I, I went to a doctor once with knee pain and I said, it really hurts when I, when I trained jujitsu. And he goes, well, you should maybe stop doing stop. that. Yeah. It hurts right. when you doc jujitsu. Yeah. yeah. It so hurts when I do you, that. We'll stop doing that. What kind of help yeah. is this? Tell me to not do the things I enjoy. Just stop bending your knee. Maybe that'll yeah. that'll make it better. So um, with attorneys, yeah, it's the same thing. You know, I um, my business attorney often tells me he'll at least say this, which is, "Well, you're going to have to make a business decision." <laughs> you know, yeah. the legal decision is here, but the business decision is, uh, you know, well, we- and and that's that's I think that it, that goes to now in our world, financial advisors, where there wasn't a lot of formal education before. Um, and over the last decade, there's more formal education. And I'm noticing younger advisors that are not able to think critically because they were trained how to think. They were trained, oh, you don't advise these things. Um, and so I've seen clients who really wanted to start a business, right? They want to leave their job and start a business and their advisor is telling them not to do that. Well, how can you say that? How can you say that he shouldn't quit the job he hates and start a business that he might love with a chance to live a life that he dreams of? You told him not to do that? Well, because he might lower the odds that he has a quote unquote successful retirement, whatever that means. But the, there's this risk-free approach to everything, and people seeking a risk-free approach don't understand that that's often 
the riskiest approach. Well, we, we saw that a lot during uh, COVID is that we were getting advice from the medical profession. The medical profession looks at it through a certain lens, which is I don't want anybody to get sick ever at all. And so their advice was, how do you avoid getting lock sick? Lock yourself in your basement. Right. Lock yourself, stay in a little room and wear a mask, you know, inside a bubble. It, but they're, they are not policymakers. And so the policymakers, yeah. you know, should take that into consideration and say, well, how does that weigh against other economic factors, for example, and, and come up with a, a, a more uh, measured solution? But yeah, I, th- I think many times attorneys are all brake pedal, no gas. Like, here's how you avoid mistakes. <laughs> yeah, although there are some attorneys who are out there who actually understand the value of combining a legal strategy with a PR strategy. And those are the lawyers that you really have to watch out for because those guys win in court and the court of public opinion. And there's an increasing number of them who have, who've caught on to this. And the ones who are able to do that tend to do it very, very effectively. Give me an example. What do you mean? Of a lawyer who's, who's quite good at the PR game. Yeah. Or a scenario where that, where that has come up. But I, I think, uh, you know, one person who comes to mind is is Alan Dershowitz. So people know him as one of the the most prolific uh, writers, uh, jurists in the nation. I think he's written fifty or sixty books. He's president emeritus at Harvard, where he's taught for years and years. He's represented all sorts of high profile clients, from O.J. Simpson to Donald Trump to loads and loads others. And he's actually very, very effective because he writes prolifically. He writes opinion pieces that get published in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and and all over the the media. He's a a guest on national television programs all the time. So he's an example of someone who fiercely advocates for his client providing legal advice, but he also understands very well how important it is to drive your message straight to the public at the same time. Yeah. He had a personal situation where he was coming out pretty strong, uh, kind of a crisis management thing he was dealing with. I think I can't remember what he got accused of, but I remember his reaction to it and it was both barrels. Man, he, he came out hard, uh, you know, kind of taking that advice you were mentioning about say something and say it quick and say it definitively. And he, he did. And I, I, uh, it was impressive. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can tell you exactly what it was if you want me to to mention it, because we actually interviewed Professor Dershowitz for the book and talked about because he had firsthand knowledge of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a cancel culture campaign. And for him, his problem stemmed from two areas. One, that he he chose to represent Donald Trump in his impeachment trial, which which really, frankly, pissed off a lot of people on the left because Professor Dershowitz is actually a lifelong Democrat. And the fact that he was representing President Trump and, and you, you, you do anything to what's perceived as helping him, and you're going you're gonna to trigger a certain percentage of the population. So part of it was he, was he was facing cancellation because he chose to provide legal representation to President Trump. And then the other piece was he had Jeffrey Epstein as one of his clients who of course you know we know did commit the most heinous crimes in terms of trafficking and abusing sexually assaulting underage girls 
and allegedly providing them also to, to his friends and whatnot. And one of the victims of Epstein actually accused Alan Dershowitz of having had sex with her and abused her. And Dershowitz categorically denied it from day one. And what he ended up doing was he he wrote two or three books in which he went right at all the allegations and explained God, all the reasons why. Again. Wow. He did. He's written he wrote a whole book defending himself yes. on one allegation. Well, these are not just any allegations. These are some serious allegations. Sure, you know, yeah. Someone of rape. And and for him, he was facing cancellation on a, on a very large scale. Someone who typically was being invited to speak at some of the most preeminent conferences and, and gathering places in New York, Martha's Vineyard, you name it. And he was all of a sudden persona non grata based on what he was contending were complete fabrications. And so he was a tireless advocate for himself. He wrote about it in op-eds. He engaged with the media. He was on TV defending himself. He wrote his books about it. And I'll tell you what, when I interviewed Professor Dershowitz, he was fired up and he was saying, I'm going to continue to deny this until my last breath because this is just not true. And during the time that I interviewed him and the time of the book actually coming out, he reached a conclusion and a settlement with the lawyer that he was embroiled in lawsuits with and the woman who accused him. And she dropped the suit. She released a statement saying, well, actually, I think I may have been mistaken. And I don't think that he did what I initially said that he did. The lawyer who had been going back and forth with him said, you know, I appreciate that Alan Dershowitz has said that he doesn't think I was trying to extort him and that I didn't commit perjury or, you know, suborn perjury. And then Alan Dershowitz had his statement. So all three of them put out their statement together as a, as a merry tribe, all happily, they all went on to live happily ever after. And Alan Dershowitz in his part was like, I said from day one that, that this was, you know, not true. I understand that, that, that this woman may have thought and she, and I believe that she believed that I was guilty of this. And I appreciate her saying that she may have been mistaken uh, because she was mistaken. And so it's been resolved, but I think his is a great example of if you're going to defend yourself, you have to be willing to go in all in. Yeah, no one is going to tell your story. You got to be, especially you, if it's not true. Yeah. You have to be willing to fight. I think even being willing to fight is enough to stop a fight most of the time. And, and, and that's, that's whether that's a lawsuit or a, or a real physical fight. <laughs> altercation, right? Somebody bumps into you in the, in the bar and they give you the look. And if you kind of back away and you're, oh, 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 well, then they know you're not willing to fight. If you sit, if you stand your ground, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to, fight. I don't necessarily want to fight and I'm not necessarily going to start a fight, but I'm willing to fight. Then that'll avoid more fights than it starts. Um, I guess, yeah, that my initial reaction was, geez, writing a whole book is kind of an overreaction. But <laughs> when I started thinking, listening to you talk, I'm like, well, if someone said I did that, I would, I would be reacting the same way. You know, if that, if somebody made up a story to that degree, I would, yeah, I, sure. I guess writing a book is like, also, not I mean, even, this, guy's, not this, even the, this guy's so prolific. Like he, he writes books, like you or I write emails. So yeah, you know. he just kind of cranks them out, which yeah. is the whole <laughs> whole thing. Um, what what are the mistakes that average business owners who are not you know already in the public eye? What mistakes are they making in um, 
avoiding future crises? Yeah, well, some of them are unavoidable. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Sometimes you get into a situation where it's mistaken identity or just someone for the circumstances are completely out of your control. That does happen. Nine times out of 10, though, there is something that's happened that was preventable. And a lot of times it has to do with things that that people do or say in the workplace, but especially on social media. And so a lot of the instances that lead to a crisis or to cancellation, they stem from something that the company did or said online or that one of their employees did or said online. And so the best way to prevent that is if you follow this two-step simple recipe, you can eliminate a huge likelihood that you're going to get into trouble. And that is before you post something, share with care and post with purpose. Share with care, post with purpose. Sharing with care means you want to be careful about security. You you know, an example of this would be you don't want to put something out that tells the world exactly where you are or what your view is on a controversial subject um, because you're just putting this out there needlessly and stepping into a fire. Now, posting with purpose has to do more with strategically, you as a business owner, a person, a representative, we all have our brand online, in the real world, et cetera. And so everything you say or do now gets captured online. Once you post it on the internet, the internet never forgets. And so when I say post with purpose, before you hit post, before you put the photo up, before you make that snarky tweet, before you do the video or you go live on Instagram, you pl- you do your TikTok, think about what do I hope to achieve by posting this? Does this present me in the light in which I would want to be judged by strangers? And does it advance how I want people to see me? And if the answer is yes, then by all means, go for it. And if not, well, then don't do it. You know, I, I, there's- well, what if it's- there's some stuff what that about, I listen to. Hold on, to. but what if, what if it's really funny, though? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to, if it's funny, you got to say it, you, you know, like damn it. the consequences, you know, yeah. damn the torpedoes. If it's really funny, just say it. Well, Chris, um, Rock and, uh, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and uh, Louis C.K. would say, well, you should say it anyway. Right. Um, the good news I stop is myself from saying so many things. Yeah. Oh, I stop. all the time. I'm like this people, would be so funny. People think I don't. But have I'm a filter. not a comedian. People so. think I don't have a filter. But if they only knew how many statements <laughs> they, do not make it past my mouth. They only knew all the things I didn't say. Well, that's so, it. Sean. Sean, yeah. you're sharing with care and you're posting with purpose. So you're I, you're you're living it. You're walking the talk. I am. I have seen there. There are some people that I follow. You know, podcasts and 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 things like that that I listen to. And it's interesting over the last, uh, you know, few years as the, as the transgender issue has emerged, I have seen a lot of those move from a very differential, uh, treating the issue, um, I'll say respectfully, but, but sort of following sort of what was the public accepted narrative to just going hard into what they really believed. And, and not couching the uh, their language at all. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because I've seen that shift. And I'm wondering if those people are saying, hey, you know what, I wasn't being authentic. Um, and, and they made a purposeful decision. And so they're, I guess they're following that advice, share with, you know, post with purpose. Um, 
because it certainly looks intentional uh, with with some of those. And I, I think I've I mean, you've seen it with some comedians. We we're talking about comedians. I've seen it with comedians that you think three years ago would not have made jokes that you're starting to see now, uh, whether it's Bill Maher or uh, Chris true. Rock. He's, or, he's really changed. His, he's, he's saying some things he wouldn't have said. Bill Maher, it's like when Bill Maher is starting to sound like the Republicans. <laughs> yeah, what are we it's doing? Interesting. It's interesting. Well, it's a, yeah. a, a you know, that's an interesting shift. point. You know, when you say that he's he's sounding like Republicans, this is what people need to understand about cancel culture and this rush to judgment of others now is it's not about conservative versus liberal. It's about liberal versus illiberal. And so what's remarkable is, and this is where I think Bill Maher has been right on point. I think Piers Morgan has been on point. I think it's actually more powerful when it comes from someone who's left-leaning, like Bill Maher, is to say, look, it's it's not a behaving in an illiberal fashion, forcing people to see it through your eyes. And if not, you try to shut them down, shout them down, cancel them. That is not American. That's fundamentally illiberal. So if you're a progressive and you claim to love progressive values, then you shouldn't go shutting down the conversation, operating, advancing a liberal agenda through illiberal illiberal means. And the same is true for, for people on the right side of the political spectrum as well, because you, know, you have people on the right. Here's the difference. The left right now in America is saying, you know, cancel culture either doesn't exist or downplaying its impact. Meanwhile, the right is claiming everything is cancel culture. So you have people who are being held to account for bad behavior. It's too convenient now. It's become a political football. On the right, they go, oh, that's cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture, in instances where it's absolutely not cancel culture. And that's why I I think part of what I wanted to do was to define the term for the first time, because there are actually six elements that make it perfectly clear whether or not an instance is cancel culture or isn't. And if you pay attention to those elements, then you'll start to see those patterns over and over again. What are those elements? I'm glad you asked. You can remember them with the acronym CONDEM, C-A-N-D-E-M. And this is based on prior research done by sociologists and thinkers looking at political witch hunts. And then I've added with my co-author a couple of elements. The six elements of cancel culture condemn. C, it is a crime, an allegation of a crime against a collective. So there has to be a group that gets bent out of shape about what happens, whether it's based on race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. So if I get into an argument with Michael Irvin, for instance, because we just, this is the Michael Irvin podcast. It wouldn't be that I'm just arguing with Michael Irvin. It would be, oh, I'm insulting Michael Irvin because he's a person of color or I'm insulting football players as a collective. The A is that the scandal arises and accelerates rapidly. Now, that only happens because we live in a social media driven world and 24 hour news cycle. So things are able to become global scandals faster than ever before. The N is that the nature of the offense is either minor or in some cases fabricated. So if I tell Michael Irvin he's stupid, somebody may demand, oh, you have disrespected Michael Irvin. 
you're a, a, a racist, you're, you're speaking out against a collective group, you hate all football players. And then it becomes the nature, all I said was, you know, you're stupid, Michael Irvin. It wasn't a big deal. The D is that it prompts a disproportionate response. So if I get into my Twitter spat with Michael Irvin, it's not enough that he and I have a beef over Twitter. It's got to be, well, Evan needs to be canceled. They need to shame me. They need to carpet bomb me with negative reviews. There has to be some sort of disproportionate response to punish me for my perceived transgression. The E is that everyone is afraid to get involved because they don't want to attract the ire of the cancel culture mob themselves. So people who get canceled lose their support network of friends and family members and colleagues because they want to stay away. They don't want to step into it. And then the M is the moral certitude of the people who cancel others. So they believe that they are doing a public service by taking out the bad guy or the bad woman or whomever it is. And they're so, they believe so strongly in the justness of their cause that the ends completely justify the means. And that's why you see people willing to send the most threatening, awful threats to people that they've never met, that they don't know, or to demand this person needs to be fired immediately. If you don't fire them, I'm going to tell every one of your customers that you are supporting that kind of behavior. And so when you look at those condemn elements, C-A-N-D-E-M, you can look at every instance that's cancel culture. And if all six elements are present, that is an open shut case of cancel culture. If you get five of the six, it probably is. But when you start to only see a few of them, it probably isn't going to hit the standard, fit the standard of what you could actually call cancel culture. And I just think it's really important that we define what cancel culture is, because if you can't define it, you can't defeat it. Yeah, that, that's that's important. And I've never seen it broken down like that. It makes all the sense in the world. Are there recent public examples that you disagree with strongly and say, hey, that's not cancel culture, even though people say it is? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, because uh, Fox News says one. everything's cancel culture. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you one that that people seize on all the time, which is um, Harvey Weinstein. And I think Harvey Weinstein, he to me is the perfect example of why that is a hundred percent not cancel culture, because Harvey Weinstein was taken down by due process and by a judicial system. And he was convicted in a court after investigation. So if you look at the condemn elements, some of them are there, but not all of them. I mean, you could take any scandal. I, you know, I'd be curious if you guys have happened to have seen a recent one where Fox was calling it cancel culture. Um, we, could, we could definitely look at uh, another example and, and say whether or not the, the elements were there or not. Okay, so they the one that comes to mind just because I I just uh, I just saw a video of his uh, was Louis C.K. So a few years okay. ago, uh, he got accused of you know uh, sexual improprieties, let's say, and and just shows got canceled. People wouldn't buy his stuff. Uh, you know that that seems to me to be cancel culture is that he didn't necessarily commit a crime. Um, based on what he was accused of doing, but people didn't like it and stopped booking his shows. Yeah, I think his, look, let's run it through the checker and see. So 
part of why, you know, you look at the first element, is it, was it against a collective? And I think the answer to that one is yes. It was seen, you know, that he was a misogynist, that he did these inappropriate things with women. Therefore, it was women, especially, who felt like he was guilty of something. Now, the A, did it arise and accelerate quickly? I think that one's debatable. I don't think it was as, as rapid fire. It kind of built over a certain amount of time. The N, the nature of the offense is minor or or trivial. I don't know. I mean, look, with in his case, he he actually like masturbated in front of women uh, without them wanting him to do that. That's that's a pretty serious uh, act. Um, I don't I don't know the law to say whether it rises to criminality, but it's 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 more than just uh, asking a woman on a date who doesn't want to go on a date and then finding yourself being accused of inappropriate sexual overtures. Um, the D, the disproportionate response. Um, I think you could argue that that one, you know, the people who were saying you should you should eliminate all of his shows, people shouldn't be able to go to his shows anymore. You shouldn't sell his CDs or or you know allow uh, the streaming services to carry his bits. Um, that would be a disproportionate response. The E, everyone's afraid to get involved. That one I don't know because I don't know how many of his fellow comedians and whatnot were vouching for him at the time versus abandoning him. Um, the moral certitude of the people canceling him, I do think was there. So I think that that one falls in a, in a gray zone. But part of what you have to understand about Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock is when you talk about cancel culture, part of the way that you defend against it is simply refusing to be canceled. And this speaks to what Sanger was talking about before. If you show that you're going to put up a fight and you're not willing to just go quietly and let people cancel you, that right there is one of the most important elements to not being canceled. And Louis C.K., he was smart about it. He apologized. He issued his mea culpa. He toned it down for a little while. He kind of went away. He kept a low profile. And then he came back. So in his case, I think there was an attempt to cancel him, but it was not, uh, certainly wasn't fully carried out and he managed to come back from it. So, I, you know, he yeah, was not, not canceled. Not qu- not quitting is the key to success in almost everything. The people who come out and apologize and grovel and say, oh, you know, they 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 take their lashes, even if they didn't really do much. Um, it never works out for him. We never hear him again. Mm. We never hear from him again. That's a really um, smart point. And, and that has changed. And in our society, cancel culture has changed. So for, for since time immemorial, if I did something to you for which I needed to apologize, I would apologize. You would either accept my apology, reject my apology, and then it was over. We'd move on. The problem with a cancel culture world is if you apologize, especially if you didn't do it or it wasn't something for which you need to be groveling and apologizing, yeah. it doesn't resolve the situation because the people who want to cancel you don't say, okay, we accept your apology. They go, see, I told you he was a dirtbag. He admitted yeah. that he did something terrible. This is why we said we should ruin his whole life. Right. It, it yeah. gives a more moral uh, certitude. Do you I remember guess, the – it was the the host of like The Bachelor. Oh yeah, that's it's the like you read. It's like one. it's like you read my book. We yeah. talk about Chris Harrison <laughs> as a great example. 
Yes. <laughs> That's funny. That yeah. is funny. Yeah, that guy got got that's got to be the craziest one i've heard I would mean, you say that's probably the most egregious one you came across or is there well explain that one for, for those who are not familiar oh, yeah. yeah walk through that one so that one i i think that is an a, a a case where we actually look at him in the chapter on apologies and how not to apologize because his apologies were a case study in the worst kind of apology so for those who are not Remembering the details, this guy, Chris Harrison, was the bachelor of the he was the host of The Bachelor for about 19 years. He was on a TV interview. They were talking about how one of the contestants had dressed it had dressed up for an antebellum party while in college. And he was being interviewed by a woman and he kind of downplayed it was like, yeah, it's not really a big deal. They need to you know, get over it. I don't see what the big deal. He downplayed the fact that she did this and was kind of like the woke police are after people and everybody just needs to take a breath. It sparked a huge controversy. Everyone started clamoring for him to be fired immediately. And then a series of things happened where he he apologized and it was kind of a groveling apology. Then he went on after that didn't work and he was still under threat of losing his job. He went on TV and he gave what's known as the hostage apology which is where <laughs> you have to, you know, you're, you're picturing these hostage videos where you've got someone who's saying what they have to say, but they're usually like, I am guilty of terrible things. <laughs> got a I sheet feel hanging behind yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he basically gave a hostage apology. It's like, a, it's a, you know, mouse struggle session on CNN. Like, <laughs> you know, you get out there and, oh yes, I, I am so wrong. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And, and beg for and, forgiveness. And they weren't buying it. And so it actually hurt him. His apology hurt him terribly because it didn't it didn't engender empathy and it didn't feel it felt like a hostage apology and not an honest or or legit apology. And so right right after he gave it on um, the host, who I think was uh, Michael Strahan, was like, look, his apology is his apology, but doesn't seem like very genuine to me was essentially what what the host said. And w- shortly thereafter, he actually lost his job. Yeah. So apologizing didn't save his job. Something you said earlier, you know, the messaging to your team, your advocates, your employees, your vendors, all all of the people around you who could be an advocate of yours is very, very important. It's more than the messaging to the public. It's like when you come out with a message to the public <laughs> that's groveling and apologetic and talking about how bad you are, well, who's going to advocate for you now? Right. Nobody's defending you now. You know, we're hesitant to defend people already. Already. I'm hesitant to defend people because, ah, well, everybody else seems to think this guy is the worst. Even if I don't think he's the worst, like, Ooh, am I going to go out on a ledge and defend him? Maybe if I personally know him, I'll go out and defend him. But otherwise you don't have a lot of defenders out there. If you go out and publicly apologize and and, you know, talk about how shameful what you did was, then all of your defenders are gone. Do you, do you think you would have been better off coming out and saying, hey, you know, this this woman went to this, you know, this party years ago, it was a long time ago. She's apologized. Let's not come down too hard on this at the time, you know, 19, 20 year old person. Let's let's show some grace, which I think sort of he tried he to do. And yeah. then he got canceled, but just double down on that. Hey, be gracious. Let's move forward. Let's show forgiveness. Let's move, you know, and, and just stuck saying. with that just rather than apologize. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying is just decided to go lean into not being canceled? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think his is, you know, you talk about the condemn elements. That one is is a perfect example. So, you know, the collective, it wasn't just that he said that this what this girl wore to a to a party. It was that he was saying something that was racist and offensive to you know people of color. It arose very fast. The nature of what he said was the woke police are, you know, we should give mm-hmm. her a break. It was a long time ago disproportionate response. The guy had his job for 19 years. Now you're saying he's got to just lose it overnight. Everyone was afraid to defend him, including his employer. They were so scared to death that they went for the most disproportionate, the most far-reaching punishment, which was termination. And the people who were coming after him, they had such moral certitude that this guy's bad, he's a racist. But if you go back and look at the whole timeline, so yeah, I agree with you, Sean. He needed to really underscore the message of, you know, not apologizing so much for what he said, but saying, guys, we need to hit the pause button here. All I said was that this person should be treated with a measure of grace. Who among us hasn't done or said something that we regret in our lives? And the answer to that is everybody. So I, I, all I was trying to say was that we shouldn't be in such a, a rush to condemn her. We don't know her. Um, you know, we should give her a measure of, of grace. She's apologized. And rather than do that, he felt clearly that he was forced into apologizing. And to Sanger's point, you know, the hostage apology doesn't work. And when you give a groveling apology and you're out there, you know, all it did was people were like, look, see, you know, the, the guy admitted what he did was terrible when it, on its face, what he did and said by really any rational measure wasn't that bad. No, I think a, a good rule of thumb is never apologize unless you did something wrong and not only wrong, but something you, you knew is wrong. Like you, you, you really erred. I mean, our producer Morgan apologizes to me all the time and it'll be for things that are just like, she's, she's not saying I am so sorry for the mistake I've made when she says I'm sorry. Right. She'll reflexively say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What she, she's she just, really saying she just is, put in the chat. What she's she's, really she's saying, apologizing for doing that. Sorry about that. <laughs> what she's really saying is that was inconvenient for you. I'm sorry. Or that didn't go as planned. I'm sorry. Or uh, it, it's like, she's, she's not saying I did something wrong. She's saying, I'm sorry for my, the burden I've placed on you. And I always tell her, do not apologize if you didn't do anything wrong. And also, I would take that one step further and say, when, when you give an apology, you have to really think about to whom do you need to direct that apology? So in the Chris Harrison apology, who did he really need to apologize to? Maybe it was the person who he got into the debate with on the, on, and sort of, I did, I downplayed, you know, what she was raising when she challenged me on this. And I, I didn't speak to you nicely. I apologize to you. And if he had apologized to the host, and she would have extended forgiveness, maybe this whole thing would have would have gone away. But when you give a general blanket apology and there's not really a single person who's the target of that apology, and I think that's part of what Will Smith had a problem with, you know, after he slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars, he issued an apology several days later. Again, he waited way too long. But yeah. when he finally did, he didn't apologize to the person who he assaulted. He apologized to the Academy and then he apologized to the public, but he didn't even apologize to Chris Rock. So that's part of why he was not absolved. And that ended up lasting. Here we are a year later, still talking about it. Yeah. Um, 
Chris Rock <laughs> just lambasted him on that thing. last. Yeah, the whole Netflix special he did apparently was just dogging on him. Um, so it in a week or two when we find out more about Michael Irvin and then the three of us get canceled for um, not condemning him. What, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it comes out, he what do I wrong. need to know? What do I need to know real quick that I can take away? What what last pearls of wisdom do you have to share with me before we wrap it up? Well, I think we're more likely to be criticized for not helping Michael Irvin than being critical of him. And just in case Michael Irvin is watching, hey, we don't know. We can't wait to learn the facts. We have a good job of telling us. So please, Michael Irvin, uh, we want to hear from you. Yeah. And you can succeed me on this podcast and be the yeah. next guest, which I think will probably – I, I have a feeling more people will come to download the Michael Irvin one than the Evan Nearman episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, don't, don't undersell don't, yourself. Yeah, don't Evan. sell yourself short. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, Michael Irvin's a hell of an athlete and he's, you know, I'm a Cowboys fan. So oh, good um, for you. what I would say is, is, you know, plan ahead. Things will go wrong. Have an idea in your mind of where your biggest weaknesses are as a business. Share with care and post with purpose. Uh, tone it down on social media. Don't be so quick to just push out opinions without thinking about how they could land on the audience because it's not what you say. It's what people hear. And uh, the good news for you guys is uh, you know how to get a hold of me. So if and when the cancel culture mob comes for you, give me a call. I got your back. I'll help you. My team is is on your side. I hope I only see you in a social setting and not a business setting. hundred <laughs> percent. I agree. Hey, hey, th- thanks. Thanks for being here. Where can people uh, get the book and tell us the name of the book again? Yeah, the book is called The Cancel Culture Curse from Rage to Redemption in a World Gone Mad. Uh, I just finished the audio book today, so that will be up shortly. People who like to listen can go on Audible. If you want more info, you can check out evannearman.com. You can go to redbanion.com if you want to learn more about what we do. And I'm on Twitter at, at Evan Nearman. And I'll give you my email address, Evan at redbanion.com. And I read my own email and I answer it. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Evan. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed our conversation with Evan. My takeaway from that is... That if you've been accused of something, and this sort of cuts against the grain of how I grew up, because I I grew up with parents that, you know, if I had offended someone or done something wrong, I had to apologize. You know, so it was a big... If you offended them? If I did something, you can imagine if I had done something wrong, just use your imagination. And and then I had to apologize. It was just part of kind of what happened to me as a kid. And so this is is hard for me to say and, and get my head around, but my learning was... Don't apologize if you haven't done something wrong. You know, the Chris Harrison example, you know, comes to mind is that that was clearly not an authentic uh, or didn't come across as an authentic apology. And he got virtually no credit for having done it. And yeah. if you, you know, the people that want you gone still are going to want you gone and are now going to double down on the fact that you did something wrong and take moral high ground on that because uh, you've just admitted that they were right. So, don't apologize if you haven't done something wrong. Yeah. Even if they don't necessarily want you gone, they have it in their mind that you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you say you did something wrong when you don't actually believe it, then you're conceding defeat Yeah, at the very least. You can show empathy and show consideration for other points of view without saying that you did anything wrong. 
My takeaway was how an outside perspective is, I guess this is something I knew before, but hearing it again was reinforcing. An outside perspective in all disciplines removes the likelihood or tendency for us to make emotionally charged choices. That could be the role of a PR and crisis management firm who's going to help you moderate your behavior at a, at a crisis point could be a lawyer who's going to give you prudent advice um, and help you manage your emotions at a stress point. If you're being sued, it could be your CPA who's going to help you manage taxes better and has, has tax knowledge, but also can remove emotions from it. Could be a wealth advisor, could be a, a coach on your sports team. It could be anybody who has an outside perspective that is rooted in knowledge and wisdom that you value. The biggest thing that makes their voice valuable to you is their reduced tendency to be emotional about those choices. Yeah. I had a conversation with somebody the other day that was uh, coaching and, and they said, wow, you know, those are some really good points you're bringing up. Do you, did you think about all this stuff when you were making decisions when you're running your business? And I, I said, no, no, but not right, at all. <laughs> right now you're driving the car and I'm the passenger. So I get to look around and look yeah. to the side and see things you can't see because you're driving and I'm not. Yeah, that's a great analogy. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.